1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, uh, this is Aaron Wyatt, and I'm here with the Russian and Eurasian Studies section of the New Books Network. And uh, I'm here today with uh, Dr. Paul Wirth, who has written a new book on the year 1837, kind of an unusual book. Uh, on, uh, it's subtitled Russia's Quiet Revolution. So thank you for being
1: with us, Paul. Uh, you're welcome. Happy to be here.
0: All right. Yeah, this is quite an enjoyable uh, book to read. The, uh, you may have gotten this a lot already from from people you've talked to, but I, my my first question was actually how you came to write a book on a, a year that's that specific.
1: Yeah, I suppose. I mean, part of the answer goes back to the fact that I was uh, chair of my department, uh, and I don't want to dissuade anybody from doing that work, but I will note <laughs> that it can be a rather miserable experience. And so at one point, sort of near the end of my tenure, I had been thinking, I can't say exactly where this idea came from. I guess I had seen a number of these, what I call yearbooks, that is books that focused on one particular year. And I thought that might be kind of curious. And I thought about how it had struck me in a lot of the work that I'd been doing over the course of the last two decades or so, that the 1830s were uh, a decade or a period of striking innovation and consequence. And that not very many people had actually noticed this. And you had a lot of books that often they would uh, present themselves as beginning in the 1860s, perhaps after the surf emancipation, or they would even take some other chronological boundary. But they would almost um, unwittingly note that, yes, but these processes really began somewhere around the 1830s. And I saw this over and over and over again. My own research had uh, focused primarily on religious issues. But I saw it in other realms as well. And as I focused more, it seemed to me more to be true. And so I thought in particular that there was this really intense period of important things happening between around 1836 and 1839. I even thought about writing a four-year book, which I guess would be called a quadrennium. But it didn't seem to me that from a marketing standpoint, this made a lot of sense. So I thought about, well, what about one year? And 1837, 1836 or 1837 were the ones that really were at the forefront of my attention. I think it was the idea or the recognition that Pushkin, Russia's greatest poet, had been killed in a duel in 1837 that convinced me that 1837 was really the one to do and that you could, with a little bit of stretching, you could sort of uh, incorporate many of these other episodes um, that maybe are a little bit more firmly rooted in 1836 or 1838. But nonetheless, 1837 is really important or central to what's unfolding. So I started just to write almost a kind of... uh, I'm not even sure that I was entirely serious. I started to write basically a book proposal while I was chair. I should have been doing other things, but I did this instead. And as I started to write, I realized that whereas initially it had struck me as kind of self-indulgent, maybe a little bit silly, it occurred to me that it actually really was working and I uh, just basically shipped it off to a publisher. Publisher liked it, sent it out to people uh, to read. They came back and they had, you know, critical remarks or suggestions Uh signed a contract and then just sat down and wrote the book once I was liberated from uh, that administrative serfdom. So uh, it it was just, in a sense, in some ways, really on a whim. uh, Yet it's one of the, uh, I'm really glad that I actually embarked on it because it was one of the most enjoyable books to write that I've ever written. And this has to do in part with the fact that I deal with, there's 10 chapters, 10 different subjects. And so I was writing about sort of something different all the time. And I was sort of moving back and forth between these different subjects, which I found really enriching and really exciting.
0: You know, an unintended consequences of your, your book may be that I just ended up as my department chair over the summer. There you go. And so now I have an excellent uh, excuse not to do stuff that I'm supposed to be doing. I'll tell them that um, I was trying to get inspired. <laughs> oh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So, uh, you know, we could talk about the the ten subjects you mentioned, kind of in, in any order, really. I guess uh, what I was wondering, maybe starting off, was um, did you did you light on ten subjects from uh, you know Pushkin's death to uh, you know rural newspapers, et cetera. Um, did the did you just kind of shake out on ten subjects, or did you decide you were going to do ten? I'm just kind of wondering how you selected topics. Were there ones that uh, you didn't that you left out? Or
1: yeah, uh, there was nothing magical about ten. I was committed to writing a book that was uh, very concise and very sharp. Uh, there's ten chapters in this book. It uh, only has just a tad over 200 pages. Uh, so most of the chapters run, in some cases, as few as 16 pages, maybe like. 20, 21 pages, the idea was that there'd be very, very sort of short and tight episodes that one could read, um, which was a challenge in its own way, but it was also very, very rewarding to try to tell these stories very, very uh, briefly, sharply, tightly. So 10, there was no magic number. There was one chapter uh, that I thought I might write. One could make the argument, I think, depending on how you count the starting, but the famous uh, Christ the Savior Cathedral in Moscow. Uh, There was actually a, a, a convent. Uh, that was on the location there, and that was evacuated or moved in 1837, and the construction began sh- shortly thereafter of that famous church, which was then torn down by the Bolsheviks and then reconstructed in the 1990s. That was one that I decided, um, somewhat to my regret, that it didn't it didn't quite it didn't quite fit. That I was getting the book was getting too long. There are other episodes, in some cases, things I've learned about since then that one could have included, but I suppose my principal goal was to touch on a range of different things or different aspects of Russian history uh, to show that these uh, consequential and uh, important things were happening in a wide variety of different areas. So several chapters at the outset, three of them, I guess, really have to do with basically Russian culture in a broad sense, that is philosophy, music, uh, and poetry. Um a couple have to do with uh, provinces in one way or another. Uh, you mentioned uh, the appearance of pro- provincial newspapers, the so-called Gubiernskye um, which were, uh, there was a decree in 1837 that produced them. They began to appear as of January 1st, 1838. There was also a, a, an extraordinary and extensive trip taken by the heir to the throne, the future Alexander II, when he was about 19 years old. He was the first uh, Romanov of the ruling family to actually visit Siberia. Then there are a couple of chapters that I wanted to have uh, actually, remaining in the province is also about uh, peasants and peasant reform, uh, the creation of the Ministry of State Domains, which uh, in, engaged in some important uh, elements of reform that were precursors to the serf emancipation in 1861. That was founded in 1837. I wanted to be sure that the imperial subject was included here. So I had a chapter from uh, the East uh, that is the lead up to the unsuccessful attempt to conquer uh, the Khanate of Khiva which actually unfolded in 1839 to 40, but important decisions and preparations were made in 1837 for that event. And then the uh, uh, unification of the Greek Catholics or the Uniates with Orthodoxy, which also happened formally in 1839, but there were extremely important aspects, really probably the central moment in the unfolding of that process occurs in 1837. Uh, the appearance of the rail- railroad that was uh, in 1837, Russia's first railway connecting Petersburg uh, with tsarskoye Siloa and Pavlovsk, I knew this was going to be an important um, episode in the book from the very beginning. Uh, and then uh, it was actually when I realized, or actually when my wife told me that uh, the Winter Palace had burned down in 1837, that I realized that 1837 was definitely the year to use. And what this allowed me to do, because Pushkin was uh, was killed in a duel in January of 1837, albeit towards the end of the month, and the uh, Winter Palace burned down almost entirely in December of 1837 – What this allowed me to do was to sort of cast the narrative in terms of, uh, to create two bookends uh, focused on these two uh, tragedies. So in other words, my goal was to make sure that various aspects of Russian history were represented, empire, uh, elites, but also peasants, uh, industry, but also culture, and to show that really in all of these realms, uh, important things were happening, things that I think actually are so consequential that they really actually do add up to uh, what I call a quiet revolution in the book's title.
0: <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so maybe for the uh, for the uninitiated, uh, could you uh, go over for a bit what it is that's such a big deal about Pushkin's suicide?
1: Uh, well, no, he, it wasn't a suicide. Or, sorry,
0: <laughs> not, I, I don't know why I said suicide. Sorry about that. About by Pushkin's death as a result of the duel there.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I mean... In some ways, this was actually, being not a literary scholar, this in some ways was the episode that I was sort of most nervous about taking on, especially since the, it's the lead-off chapter, and I'm even waiting with a little bit of nervousness as to what reviewers and people who actually know that subject uh, somewhat better than I do will actually have to say about it. But it seems to me what I've tried to do in the book, among other things, uh, in and let me just backtrack for a moment and sort of present, in some ways, elements of the larger argument and then try to situate the Pushkin episode within that larger argument. In some ways, I've already touched on it. It's this idea that there are we don't think of the 1830s or the reign of Nicholas I generally as being a period um, that exhibits dynamism, uh, change, reform or consequence. I think people who know the period a little bit better uh, understand that there actually are some things going on here. But generally speaking, I think scholars uh, of Russian history outside of this area don't know a lot about it and probably associated, uh, associate his, his reign and that period, above all, with censorship, conservatism, uh, a certain degree of kind of uh, stagnation, the gendarme of Europe maintaining order uh, throughout the continent, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. What I'm suggesting is uh, those elements are there. It is a conservative regime. It's opposed to revolution. It's cautious about change. But in fact, both in terms of what the regime itself is doing and in terms of what the society is doing, almost regardless of what The regime itself has to say about the matter, you actually have really, really important changes happening here. And so Russia really becomes a different place after 1837 than it had been before. But to speak a little bit more specifically about what's going on, it seems to me that there's a way in which uh, all of the developments that I discuss in the book, all of the episodes, to one degree or another, they exhibit a process of the deeper and more profound integration of the country. It's In effect, it's unification. And by extension here, what I think we see is actually a process of nation building within the larger empire. That is, I'm suggesting that in a sense, a Russian nation is appearing within uh, the larger empire in which it's situated. And what I don't want to suggest is that uh, national consciousness had no existence before this point. I think some of the research that's been going on for decades has revealed this To be the case and we can talk about elements of uh specifically russian identity russian national consciousness appearing earlier but what i'm suggesting here is that there's a way in which i think the nation is becoming embodied in particular institutions and in particular practices and i can talk a little bit more subsequently if there's a desire about each of each of those cases but it seems to me that what's happening with uh pushkin's uh death uh, not in a suicide, but in a duel. Yeah,
0: I'm sorry about that. Although there, there's
1: a strain of interpretation that says that he had a kind of death wish. There are other people who don't uh, subscribe to that view. But what's happening here is that, I mean, already, admittedly, to some extent, even before he dies, I think there's you see the construction of a kind of cult around him as the national poet. But I think it really takes off uh, in the aftermath of his death, although even there it takes some decades for it to get fully off the ground. But what, I, what I'm suggesting is that I think you see the appearance of the idea that Pushkin represents the national poet. And here I would propose that a really important uh, set of changes is occurring more generally in the culture. We see the appearance of this concept narodnost, which can be translated as nationality or peopleness or sort of national character. And I think it depends on the precise context as to how we define it. But it's clear from the late 1820s and into the 1830s that there's a kind of thirst for uh, Russia to be able to express itself at its sort of national particularity in particular forms. Music is one, and there's a chapter on uh, Mikhail Glinka's A Life for the Tsar, his first uh, opera, which premiered in late 1836. But also I think you see it uh, reflected in a kind of thirst for national expression in the form of literature. And so in this sense, Pushkin was there at just this moment. He was uh, extraordinarily talented, I mean, utterly brilliant. So I think he would have been venerated in some form regardless of his death in 1837. But I think the fact that he died in the way that he did, uh, in a a duel that was uh, punctuated or uh, caused by romance and intrigue uh, with a foreigner who had uh, exhibited or given attentions to his wife – that all of this made for an extraordinarily compelling story and I think enhanced and deepened uh, the capacity of people to make the claim that he in effect was a national hero and the national poet.
0: Uh, So would you then uh, kind of place the uh, uh, Pushkin's uh, kind of centrality to this uh, national sense of, of being us, you know, in context with other, uh, you know, other movements like that across the, uh, across the world. I've mean, thinking about the Grimm brothers, uh, uh, you know, collecting folklore and fairy tales. It's been, you know, connected with a kind of romantic nationalism. I and mean, you see that as part of a broader, you know, movement outside of Russia as well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think it is very much part of that broader sense. I mean, it is a, a sort of particular moment in the emergence of, I guess you could say romantic, romantic nationalism, Um, And I think the 1830s, I guess what I'm suggesting, uh, maybe beginning as early as the late 1820s, but I think in the 1830s in particular, this is where I think uh, the consciousness of, how shall I put it, the appropriateness of that particular project uh, becomes especially astute. That is, it's now that people realize uh, that we need to be doing these kinds of things as well. And so I think there's a search, I would say maybe a thirst for forms of culture, I mean, both, I think, in the elite sense and at the popular sense that reflect this kind of national character. And so one can see this in a wide variety of different ways. And in this sense, I think Pushkin is just uh, one of them. I think it's a particularly marked expression of this. But indeed, it's a broader, I think, in some ways, um, pan-European movement or intellectual tendency that we see manifested in this particular way in Russia.
0: I was was wondering with... uh both with regard to Pushkin and then with your chapter on the, on the opera um, about the reception issue, like, uh, you know, who's, who's reading Pushkin, or at least hearing him read, who's, uh, who's attending performances, Uh, you know, how, how far down society does, uh, you know, do these, do these people reach?
1: Well, I would say probably not very far. I mean, what I, what I think is striking and here, I won't be able to pull out the, statistics immediately from my head. But uh, when in the chapter that I wrote about the provincial newspapers, which I think do begin the process of reaching somewhat deeper down into society, but even there, we're talking about a relatively, um, how shall I put it, elite level to as a function or as a result of the fact that uh, literacy is pretty limited. I think probably we can say, and depending on what we, you know, how we define literacy, probably at this period, 1820s and 1830s, You know, perhaps only about 5% of the population maybe was literate in sort of any sense, and probably more like only 1% or 2% are sort of actively reading, shall we say. So in that sense, in particular, I would say the first three chapters, which have to do with culture, uh, we're talking about an elite phenomenon, though I think it's uh, worth noting that, of course, many of these things become mass phenomenon. Uh, If not in the late decades of the czarist period, although I think that's already happening at that point, then certainly by the Soviet period where Pushkin becomes a major icon, I think, for the Soviet regime. There's a massive uh, commemoration of his death in 1937, which is, in fact, how I start uh, that chapter. So we're we're talking about uh, an an elite phenomenon, certainly. Uh, as regards reception, even allowing for the fact that it's an elite phenomenon, if I can maybe turn to the to the opera, this is uh, Mikhail Glinka's Life for the for the uh, Tsar. Uh, premiered in St. Petersburg in November of 1836, the uh, opera was actually completed later in 1837. It became a staple of the Imperial Opera House. It appeared hundreds of times in Moscow. Of course, it was performed uh, in the provinces. There was recently an article in Slavic Review about how it was performed by local uh, amateur singing societies in the late empire in places like perm and uh, other places so we know that even if initially these things are entirely elite they do eventually uh, do eventually trickle down i think the issue of receipt uh, of, of reception here is interesting precisely because once again i would point to this idea of narodnost or national character of the desire for the russian character to be expressed in literary or musical works. And here, too, I think that Glinka, in a way like Pushkin, was sort of uh, in the right place at the right time. Among musicologists, there's a disagreement about whether or not, or maybe uncertainty about whether or not uh, Glinka's music actually represents kind of national music, about whether or not there are Russian motifs. I think certainly the standard interpretation, uh, it's one that actually Glinka himself uh, peddled in uh, his memoirs that were published in the mid 1850s, that he had listened to folk songs and tried to incorporate those uh, into the opera. I think there are musicologists who would call that into some question, but I think it's what is beyond question is the proposition that there were many people when that opera was uh, premiered in November of 1836 who declared and understood that, in a sense, uh, Russian national opera had made its appearance. There was a sort of sense that now we have national opera, and I think there was a desire that was rooted in that romantic, that idea of romantic nationalism, that every society must have its heroic bard, uh, must must have its uh, Shakespeare, must have its national music, and so I think you know my view of the situation is almost regardless of the actual content. Of the music itself although the story in the opera actually is 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 a national story one can say Uh, i think it was the thirst for thirst for for the expression of the national spirit in in this case in forms of high culture that mm, converted people to the idea that national opera had now appeared here too we see arguments there were people who said uh, in fact previous composers who contested this claim and said they Earlier, had already incorporated, for example, uh, popular motifs, musical motifs into uh, opera and uh, uh, elite music. Uh, but it was precisely Glinka's uh, opera that I think was recognized over the long haul as having performed that function. And I think it's the timing here was absolutely critical. I think an opera performed in 1815 or written in 1815. Um, as the first Ivan Susanin opera, the predecessor to A Life of the Tsar, was, uh, that I, it was too early, I suppose, for that. Whereas by the 1830s, this thirst is well-developed, and I think the opera then meets that need and, in a sense, enters that sort of pantheon of Russian national culture. I hope that answers the question. I'm not sure one could certainly say more.
0: Yeah, I guess that, that puts me in mind of a follow-up, which is so, you know, people, as you said, are kind of looking for some kind of national essence. And Then we ask who these people are. I um, mean, is that is that kind of in response to a perceived lack in the Russian case, say, as compared to, you know, say, France, for instance, since the elite was uh, such uh, so literate in French language and culture?
1: Yeah, I think there was a bit of that. And that, I mean, actually does provide a really nice segue to the third chapter where uh, I discuss... Um, uh, the famous text Apology of a Madman by the philosopher Pyotr Chadaev. And that text in 1837 came in the aftermath of a text written in 1829, but published in 1836, which created a great scandal. This is the first philosophical letter. It appeared uh, in the fall of 1836 in the journal Telescope. And uh, I won't attempt to relate all of the content of that, but among uh, among the other claims that, Uh, Chidaev made in that letter was the claim that uh, Russia had contributed nothing to uh, world culture and world civilization, that uh, Russians were primarily imitative, uh, that they had brought nothing of their own. And so I do think that, I think the timing here is interesting. And to my knowledge, nobody's drawn these connections before, and perhaps people wiser than me will tell me that I'm wrong to have done so. But it does strike me that, uh, you have the appearance of this first philosophical letter that makes the claims I just described in the fall of 1836. Almost simultaneously, I think it was about a month later, we see the premiere of Mikhail Glinka's opera, A Life for the Tsar. And actually the scandal leading to Pushkin's death in January of 1837 is actually unfolding right at this point. And we know, of course, that uh, his death in the duel occurred uh, in, in January of 1837. And I can't help thinking, and I propose this in the book, that uh, among other things, what I think is helping to elevate people like Glinka and Pushkin uh, at this time, aside, I think, from their genuine talent, is precisely a reaction to the claim by Chidaev that Russia has made no meaningful contributions. You can already see on the eve of this, um... Uh, In 1835, uh, who is it? His name is, I'm blanking on his name, but one of the literary uh, critics of the time writes that really what narodnost involves is uh, taking a leaf from the experience of Europe is that what we should take from Europe is the fact that we should actually respect ourselves. That is, we should identify our own attainments. And here is Pushkin, here comes Glinka. They offer these great attainments right on the heels of the publication of an article that says Russia has no cultural attainments, one can point to another episode that I address only briefly, uh, and that is uh, the artist Karl Brullov produces this famous, uh, mm, a famous painting, uh, the Last Days of Pompeii. It's painted in 1834 in Italy. It comes back to Russia or comes to Russia, I believe, in 1836, and precisely a similar kind of process of making him sort of the national artist or a uh, hudozhnik. A painter is occurring at the same time. So it seems to me that uh, partly we see uh, a reaction to a, just a generalized desire to have a national culture that places Russia on a level with the rest of Europe more generally, and partly also, I suppose, in response to the specific claims being made by Chadaev. Here we can note that the regime itself is also promoting this idea Uh, of Narodnas. This is one of the reasons why the regime becomes very irate with Chidaev, uh, actually prohibits him from publishing any more for the rest of his career, which he never does. He does write some other things, including Apology of a Madman uh, in 1837. Uh, But there's a real attempt on the part of the regime, but I think also on the part of society to have this national culture. And in that sense, Chidaev's famous text represents a kind of Challenge to say we don't have anything, and people can immediately point when this is published and say, "As a matter of fact, we do. Here is Pushkin. Here is Glinka. Here is Brullov, Brullov, uh, and so forth."
0: That's. Uh, I never heard that that theory advanced with regard to, to Chidaev. If you run across anything in the sources that uh, you know, like has anybody mentioned Chodayev's letter specific, explicitly and? In context of saying, "Hey, yeah, we've got this or we've got that,"
1: I can't, I can't say that uh, that I've seen that in any kind of explicit or direct form. But I will note that I mean all of these things are happening simultaneously, and we're talking <coughs> about you know a, a relatively this is a point we already made a, a relatively small elite. I mean, Chadayev and Pushkin are in essence friends. Um, uh, the uh, Pushkin attends the. Uh, the premiere of Glinka's opera. Uh, so all of these things are happening at once. So perhaps it's maybe more of a circum- circumstantial argument. Uh, I suppose one could say that. I think there's enough to uh, make to, uh, I think for the claim to uh, hold water. I can't help uh, just citing briefly um, um, the, the, the quote with which I actually, uh, at the epigraph with which I begin the book which was actually a letter that Pushkin wrote uh, in response, that wrote to Shaddaev in response. It actually was never mailed, uh, so it was, we, we don't know that Shaddaev ever saw it. But he says, Pushkin is writing in October of 1836, do you not find something grand in Russia's present situation, something that will astonish the future historian? So I think Pushkin himself, in fact, is quite uh, directly responding. Again, Chadaev doesn't actually read this as far as we know, but in his own mind, he's clearly reacting to this and he's in effect saying that Russia actually does have cultural attainments uh, that it can point to. And it's actually an astonishing present situation. And uh, when I read that uh, remark by Pushkin, I thought immediately this is this should be the epigraph because it really states uh, almost exactly what I wanted to say in, in the book. The only problem is that the quote comes from uh, October of 1836 and not from 1837, but uh, remember the poor man died in January of 1837. So there wasn't much time in 1837 for him to actually say such things. But I think, so I think you can, if you think about the small size of the world that we're talking about, about the interconnected character of many of these people. And that's another thing that I think emerges from this book is that certainly in the realm of culture, all of these people kind of are, in, are, are living in really one, more or less one space, whether it's in Moscow Uh, as, for example, Chidayev, or whether it's in St. Petersburg um, with Glinka and uh, Pushkin at the time. But there are other people who, uh, 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 Zhukovsky, the poet Zhukovsky, for example, he becomes a kind of red thread and is implicated in many of these stories that have nothing to do with poetry. Uh, He, for example, accompanies the heir to the throne on his trip uh, across 20,000 kilometers across Russia. And so I think the argument, I'll be curious to see what, uh, other, how other people react to it. Uh, maybe they'll shoot it down, but I feel actually pretty confident. And It seems to me that I would not say that Shaddai's remarks were the cause of, uh, for example, uh, Pushkin and Glinka being raised into this pantheon, but I do think it gave that tendency or that inclination an extra impetus.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I I hadn't thought about Shaddayev in years until I, I read your book, and that's a uh, yeah, quite an interesting thesis. I'll be I'll be curious to see if if other uh, you know reviewers uh, comment on that at all. We shall um, see. Yeah, we uh, uh you mentioned Alexander's travels, so maybe we should uh, uh, touch on that next. That is uh, quite a trip the the heir to the throne took. So could you talk about how that uh, plays into the story here?
1: Sure. I mean, I guess I would say uh, at the outset, I mean, one of the uh, one of the points that I'm trying to make, as I mentioned earlier, is that uh, there's a way in which this moment in Russian history, 1837 and the years immediately around it, uh, is a period where I think we see intense processes of unification of the country occurring. And what I'm proposing is that the extraordinary trip that Alexander Nikolaevich, the Grand Prince, the future Alexander II, he becomes the emperor in 18, 1855, this extraordinary trip that he takes, uh, 20,000 uh, kilometers across the entire country, the first Romanov to go to Siberia, this actually performs the function um, both in terms of how the press covers the travel and also in terms to the best that we can uh, we can reconstruct it, the experience of the people who actually encountered the heir to the throne as he came through towns and villages uh, throughout large portions of Russia, that we see that this experience um was in a sense played a kind of unifying function. It became really one of the central... I mean, the press, one has to acknowledge, is quite censored. And there's a kind of a quasi-official press, um, the Northern Bee and some other newspapers that I draw on that are are covering this. And obviously, they're trying to play up this trip. And we have to keep in mind that uh, there's an ideological function to these stories. But we have, I think, enough sources uh, from archives and from sort of private letters and other places that demonstrate that the account that the newspapers give, uh, if maybe exaggerate a little bit, is uh, nonetheless broadly accurate of, I think, the enthusiasm and excitement with which people actually received uh, the heir to the throne. I mean, first of all, we can just note that uh, in much of uh, provincial Russia, it would seem as though uh, life goes on sort of day to day, year to year, uh, without much change. There's a certain kind of stability Maybe a certain kind of, I don't even, perhaps even boredom that we can point to. And so this is a really big event when, of course, the heir to the throne comes to your village. And uh, this is all, of course, by horse and carriage. So it means that he's going through a lot of postal stations, a lot of uh, district towns, you know, at the uyezd level. He's hitting a lot of the provincial uh, towns, like Vyatka and Kazan and Vologda. And for many, many places in, in Siberia, in particular, he visits only Western Siberia, Thaborsk and Tumien, uh primarily, uh, but for those people in Siberia, but for other places too, this is an extraordinary event. Uh, and uh, people write things like uh, 1837 will go down in history. Uh, we will remember it forever because that's the year when uh, the heir to the throne visited us. Many of these uh, towns uh, and villages, they engage in commemoration uh, they put on display various objects that the heir to the throne might actually have touched or might have used. Or if he used a boat to go across a river, they would you know, put that uh, on, effectively on a pedestal uh, and it would become basically a, a teaching tool for local youth. And there was a great deal of, there's an element of celebrity. I mean, I think the press is now well-developed enough, even if it's uh, constricted and censored, there's enough of a press that we can see an element of uh, an aura of celebrity following uh, the air. He was about 19 years old at the time, as uh, the scholar Richard Wortman suggests. He develops this kind of scenario or this image of love with his subjects, and you can see that being developed already here. So, that element of, um, of celebrity is really strong, and then the sense of emotion is also very strong as well. It's rooted in, I think, a sentimentalism, a characteristic of that romantic age, uh, but lots of uh, tears of uh, joy, of tenderness, uh, lots of rapture. uh, And again, some of this clearly is played up in the sources for the purposes of, um, of enhancing the regime. There's also clearly a sense that I think these, the way in which the heir is met or greeted in the early stops is also, I think, designed to be assigned to those later on. Here's what you're supposed to do when he arrives. That is, you should all be in rapture. You should all be bawling and weeping. Uh, you should all find him uh, uh, extraordinarily uh, attractive and exciting and so forth and so on. But I, th- I think there's enough here, at least in my reading of the sources, to suggest that some of these sentiments are actually genuine, or even if they are sort of instructed, uh, that doesn't mean that they can't become uh, real in their own way. And we have, once again, sort of private letters that describe the ways in which, um, you know, one fellow writes, you could have washed out the entire town square with all the tears uh, being uh, being wept. And I, I don't see any particular reason to doubt that, someone who could genuinely be considered a celebrity, I'm not sure that the term as such didn't exist. I don't think the phenomenon as such had a name, but someone of that stature, I think for a lot of people in some of these places, you know, this was possibly the only time that someone of this stature might ever actually uh, visit them. That, was, of course, was not true of a place like Moscow, which is, by the way, where the heir was actually born, Pushkin as well. But for some of these outlying cities, for a place like Siberia that had never had anybody visit, uh, from the ruling Romanov family this obviously is a really really big deal
0: does uh, uh, so maybe maybe we ought to uh, move on to see if there's yep. anything you want to say about the newspapers then since obviously that's a you know very much connected subject like what is uh, you know whether they're reporting on Alexander's travels or, or other stuff like what's circulation like uh, I mean are, are people how many people are reading them what do they what do they talk about?
1: Yeah, the newspapers, actually, this is one of um, one of my favorite chapters in the book, and provincial newspapers would not necessarily be a topic that someone could get very, very excited about, uh, unless you happen to love provincial newspapers, I guess. Uh, but, you know, my sense uh, in writing this chapter are that really something very big and important was happening here. What I'll say, uh, first of all, is that the provincial newspapers could not write about the trip of, uh, of the heir to the throne because... Um, mm, Uh, the decree creating them, it was part of a larger provisional reform, appeared in June of 1837 with the target date of of January 1st, 1838 for the newspapers actually to appear. There had been an experiment earlier in the 1830s um, to produce such newspapers in six provinces. To the best I was able to determine, only one of them, Yaroslavl, was actually able to produce newspapers. But on the basis of that, the experiment went forward then in 1838. And what this means is that the number of newspapers in Russia actually tripled overnight. That is from 1837 to 1838, uh, the number uh, just jumped uh, quite considerably. So for example, uh, in 1831, you only had three newspapers in the uh, provinces. Uh, In 1838, you had 46. Um, So it just changed the picture entirely. And These newspapers, they didn't have a a huge circulation. We're probably talking about several hundreds. Um, Merchants seem to have been uh, important uh, subscribers. One of the sources or uh, initiators of the newspapers was actually the Ministry of Finance, which believed that there was a possibility to promote commerce and trade through these newspapers, if people in differing places knew, like for example, when auctions and fairs uh, and markets were occurring in other places, or just simply knew about resources that were located in, in other provinces, part of the goal was to facilitate uh, bureaucratic correspondence among the provinces. So each newspaper had what was called an, an official section, which basically covered Uh, various issues like statistics and things like on runaway serfs and this sort of thing. But then there was an unofficial section where, in large measure, within the constraints of censorship at the time, the local uh, editors were allowed basically to do, in essence, whatever they wanted to. And what I'm suggesting with these newspapers is that, although it was uneven, I mean, some provinces, you almost get the sense they were waiting for this moment and immediately were producing Lots of really interesting and actually high quality material. Other provinces struggled a great deal, I think, because they simply didn't have the personnel. They didn't have a kind of local intelligentsia large enough to be able to produce uh, simply the content. But the ones that did well and gradually all of them start to produce these things, even if it takes a couple of decades, uh, is you see uh, a really uh, direct attempt on the part of these various authors and editors to explore their own provinces. Recall that these provinces, most of them had been created in some sense artificially only in 1775 under Catherine the Great after, in the aftermath of the Pugachev Rebellion. So they had been put together fairly recently in historical time. In many cases, they didn't really have necessarily any sort of clear history uh, or ethnographic, let's say, coherence. I mean, there were sort of peoples interspersed around these provinces. There's, there was no particular province that was devoted to a particular, let's say, ethnic group. Uh, so they were interspersed and all of these provinces had uh, local archives, church archives, they had local legends, they had lore. And so what a a number of these editors started to do was to collect this and they started to write articles. They started to produce uh, historical accounts of things that had happened uh, in the provinces of, in some cases, they just did descriptions like here are the districts, uh, here are the people who live here. Uh, You have these extraordinary articles, like for example, I think it was on Tambov province where... Uh, the authors described that over 36 years or over 12 years, they had witnessed 36 rainbows. I mean, just this really strange, I mean, the, the Russian word smith or kind of miscellany really nicely characterizes a lot of this. But a lot of this is really good ethnographic material. And I, having written a book about uh, missionary activity in, among non-Russian provinces in the Volga region, a lot of the ethnographic material that I took for writing that book came precisely from these, um, these provincial newspapers. So what the newspapers did, I think, was, I think, to enhance uh, and begin to build further a kind of reading public, which does gradually become larger, it also fosters a sense of uh, regional or provincial identity, so that uh, I think the, you could say, the local study that we now call Krajavedenia in Russian, I think, really has its roots. There are roots in a number of sources, but this, I think, is one of them. And then what I want to suggest is that, Even so, for all of the particularity of each province, and there was the tendency to sort of emphasize the particularity of each province in the pages of their provincial newspapers, nonetheless, precisely because all of these provinces, or at least the 42 European provinces that initially began this experiment in 1838, all of them shared this intellectual experience. All of them all of a sudden had to produce newspapers. All of them had to focus on what made them distinct, but what I'm proposing is that precisely in focusing on what was distinct all at the same time, they're actually forging a common experience which creates a sense of unity and unification, and I think is another one of the institutions that's actually forging uh, a nation or a national culture within the Russian Empire.
0: Uh, this is skipping up ahead a little bit, but do you find the same thing then with the advent of uh, railway travel?
1: Railway travel, I think, has uh, a similar effect. I think it probably takes a good deal more time for that to occur. Uh, Russia really finds itself not much of a laggard in terms of when it actually produces or uh, introduces its first railway. There was a lot of debate about whether railways would actually even function in Russia, there was a supposition that Russia was perhaps too cold. It was not clear what would happen uh, in the depths of winter. Uh, but in part because Nicholas uh, the First, who had training as a military engineer, and I think, you know, in some sense intuitively understood the benefits of railways, he sanctioned the creation of an experimental railway, which covered just about I think it was 27 kilometers uh, from St. Petersburg, what's now I think the Vitebskii. Uh, train station out to Tsarskae Seloa, one of the uh, palace complexes uh, to the south of the city. And it needs to be said that in the immediate aftermath, it took a little bit of time for Russia to go further and take the next steps. Uh, They did start to build a railway or participate in the construction of a railway between Warsaw and Vienna. That was the first international connection that appeared later in the 1840s, as I recall. And of course, construction on the very important. Line between St. Petersburg and Moscow also began uh, in, uh, I believe it was the early 1840s. Uh, But we know uh, from uh, the Crimean War, for example, that Russia lacked railways, for example, that were going further south. So Russia actually strangely became a little bit of a laggard. So I cannot make the claim that this kind of unification that we may ascribe to the newspapers occurs rapidly with the case, in the case of uh, the Russian railway. But I do think that it can be stated, I think unequivocally without question, that 1837 was the date of birth of the Russian railway and that moreover eventually uh, railways in Russia did perform that unifying integrative uh, function, uh, certainly by the second half of the 19th century. And I think for anybody who's visited uh, Russia, it's almost impossible to imagine moving about uh, in the country without the railway. I've always enjoyed myself using the rail whenever possible, uh, as long as time allows. And I've had you know great uh, experiences and conversations in coupés and even Platzkart uh, wagons, uh, for which I have a strange affection with, um, that I'm sure nobody shares, these sort of rolling dormitories. So I think, in short, I think the railway does perform that function, though I think it takes a little bit more time. I'll just note here that it was um, a foreigner, actually, um, a man by the name of von Gerstner, an Austrian, who actually was really uh, the driving force behind uh, the construction of that first Russian railway. Uh,
0: so we got a, a few more uh, bits of subject matter to cover here. Maybe I was I was thinking about your chapter on the uh, the Kiva campaign, uh, which I wanted to say I'm not wrong, am I? That the first sentence in that chapter is an homage to Jane Austen. It is indeed. I, I thought so i I, I laughed in fact I actually i I thought that was a nice touch you had very nice opening sentences to all of those chapters but that was that was one of my favorites uh so kind of in context of the the Russian Empire then how does the the kiva campaign figure into the story here
1: yeah this was uh this was one that uh in, in a purely chronological sense because the so-called winter campaign against the Khanate of Hiva. Uh, this was an independent um, entity a polity uh, in Central Asia. It eventually was conquered by the Russians in uh, 1873 and it became a protectorate. Uh, it's now essentially, I guess in Uzbekistan. Uh, but the winter campaign of 1839 to40 was actually unsuccessful. It was actually a quite dreadful failure. Uh, and the key to the campaign and actually the key to its failure precisely was uh, were camels. Because camels were the main source of transport uh, for for trade caravans in particular, but also for military campaigns as they unfolded in Central Asia. And here I need to do a shout out to Alexander Morrison, whose recent book on the conquest of Central Asia was – he had had several articles before that was published. And I latched onto those uh, in developing this chapter, along with a little bit of work in in an archive in Kazakhstan – Uh, But he was really the one that called to my attention uh, the importance of logistics generally and of camels in particular. And the issue that um, uh, Vasily Perovsky, who was the general governor of Orenburg, was was sort of the the regional capital right on the edge of the steppe. One can say, I think, that uh, what we now regard as Kazakhstan had been partially uh, incorporated into the Russian Empire, but certainly not fully and not completely and what was happening with regard to khiva was that there were nomads some of them Kazakhs, some of them turkmen who were uh, in the process of uh, they would raid a uh, trading caravans and they would sometimes even take uh, slaves and captives from the russian empire that is those communities that were located just on the edge of the steppe and i think for reasons primarily of imperial prestige i think russia was becoming more and more conscious of itself as a european power in some sense entitled Uh, to be a master uh, in Asia. Increasingly, uh, the Russian elite found it intolerable that there was this undisciplined uh, Khanate that would not or could not control its supposedly subject nomadic populations. And so there was a sense that the Khanate had to be disciplined. There were all kinds of plans uh, to deal with that problem, none of which worked. And so the decision was made, uh, I think, somewhere right around 1837. It's hard to pinpoint an exact date, but some of the other measures that were tried that didn't work sort of end in 1837. And the decision is made then that a campaign should be launched against uh, Hiva. And one of the problems that the organizers of the campaign faced was uh, basically, how do you get across, I think it was along the order of 1500, kilometers? How do you get across across this territory? Uh, it's very arid. How do you get across it with enough uh, equipment and men to be able to siege? Um, an enclosed city at the other end and conquer it. And uh, Parovsky made the decision. He had fought in, in the Napoleonic Wars, so he was tested in war. He decided that what Russia should do with it, it should undertake the campaign in the winter uh, because there would, it would, there would be snow on the steppe and there would be guaranteed access to water, which was far less certain in the summer. It turned out that that winter was brutally uh, snow-filled and very, very cold. And uh, the camels and the Kazakhs to sort of drive or ride the camels that they enlisted for this, the Kazakhs in particular, well, they didn't ask the camels, of course, but the Kazakhs were a bit skeptical <laughs> about the wisdom of actually undertaking such a campaign in the winter. Uh, they advised essentially against it. Um, Pirovsky was uh, determined to undertake it. So they departed uh, in uh, 1839. I think it was in the fall of 1839. And it didn't take long before the snows to hit for it to become extremely cold. And, you know, the men to some extent held out. The horses kind of made their way, but the camels were absolutely uh, unsuited to this kind of travel. The camels were typically kept in the southern portions of the steppe during the winter, precisely for this reason. They have soft hooves, so it's very difficult for them to locate um, uh, grass and food underneath the snow. Horses have hard hooves, so it was easier for them. Uh, And so basically what you had was a kind of camel holocaust where they just start dropping like flies. There's just literally the trail is just littered with these unfortunate camels. Uh, About 90% of them actually died. Uh, There was even a revolt of Kazakhs against this. Uh, They said, we're not going to go any further. Uh, Perovsky just took out a revolver and had two of them shot on the spot. They continued. But then even he had to recognize ultimately uh, that they had to turn back. They turned back. Um, And the conquest of uh, Central Asia took rather a different route thereafter, although Kiva was finally conquered, as I noted, in 1873, just not in 1839 or 1840. And the way this fits into the book, I think I'll admit that this is maybe the chapter that fits uh, the least well, not least of all because the campaign was a failure, um, also because it doesn't really say a lot about kind of national unification. But I do think, I'll say two things, I suppose, in my defense. One is that this was just too good of a story to pass up on, and I will first <laughs> admit that in writing this book, I was looking for uh, stories that were illustrative of larger patterns and processes, but also stories that were good. I do think that one can say, you know, with the exception uh, of uh, uh, dismissing a couple of probes earlier in the century, this is arguably really where the, the conquest of Central Asia actually begins, even though this first step is uh, unsuccessful. We th- typically think of that conquest as occurring after um, the Crimean War. We think of the fall of Tashkent in 1865 as being a central moment. It is a central moment, but we think of that often as being the beginning. But I think Alexander Morrison has demonstrated clearly that it happens earlier. Here I'm standing of, on the shoulders of that, uh, of that giant. But I will say, in terms of the thesis about unification, that I do think that for all of the disaster of the campaign itself. I think both this period and actually the process of the campaign does play an important, significant role in also unifying the Kazakh uh, territories, or some of them anyway, uh, with the empire. I think they'd only been sort of nominally within the Russian Empire, and their incorporation is by no means complete at the end of the 1830s, but I think it's much more thorough uh, in part as a result of the processes that I discussed in that chapter.
0: I, I had to chuckle when I got uh, finished with that chapter. I was thinking, so if you take camels in the winter, the camels die. And then if you try to take camels across the desert in the summer, like Persia did when he tried to get into Tibet, then all the people die instead. Yeah. yeah. So
1: yeah I mean, you, you do realize, uh, I mean, think what you will morally of the conquest of uh, you know, other countries. Uh, but it really was an extraordinary logistical challenge uh, to be able to undertake undertake such a, uh, such a campaign, and th- the failure of which demonstrates precisely that thesis.
0: Well, certainly the British took it pretty seriously, since I think that's part of the long backstory to the British decision to invade Afghanistan uh, in opposition to perceived Russian encroachment towards India.
1: Yeah, that's right. Oh. I tried that ch- chapter without getting drawn too uh, deeply into this sort of great game thesis, which some people... Uh, are dismissing now, probably rightly, but I think there are elements there that are certainly true, that I think uh, the late 1830s also feature really uh, the full entrenchment of uh, British Russophobia, which dissipates a little bit in the 1840s as Russia and uh, and Britain, I think, come to terms on some key issues, but then is reactivated uh, almost instantaneously, I would say, uh, in the Crimean War, but only because it had already been fully activated in the 1830s. And I think uh, British concerns about uh, Russian designs in Central Asia uh, and with respect to India, this was uh, a principal source of their concern. Of course, these events uh, were important primarily for Russia itself and for Hiva and for the uh, Steppe peoples, uh, but it, it also is located in this larger uh, in this uh, larger picture of uh, geopolitical developments. Uh, this competition, call it don't call it the Great Game if you don't want to, but this imperial competition between uh, Britain and Russia, w- which I think is was really is quite is quite real.
0: We're uh, we're running kind of short on time here to discuss the state peasants and the uh, uh, the unionists, but I, I think we've still got time uh, for you to talk a bit about what you see as the symbolic significance, at any rate, of the uh, the burning of the uh, the czar's palace in in December.
1: Yeah, that was uh, definitely one of the favorite, uh, f- my favorite chapters. It was I, to my embarrassment, as a scholar even of the nineteenth century, I did not know that the Winter Palace had burned down almost entirely in eighteen thirty-seven.
0: I did not know that either. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don- I'm not sure that very many people actually do. So that the, uh, of course, the original was constructed in the seventeen fifties and sixties, and I think most of us, uh, you know, probably think of okay, there's the building constructed in the seventeen 18- fifties and sixties. Uh, in fact, uh, it's not that palace at all. It's actually, it actually looks very similar. It was designed to look very similar, but actually, it was in a lo- in certain ways actually really quite different. That is, it's in uh, its structural engineering was really different. It had internal heating. It had elevators, which none you know, which the uh, none of which the first or the original palace actually had. So, in uh, December of uh, 1837, the emperor was actually at the theater that night, um, uh, and it's sort of complicated to describe uh precisely how the fire happened it had to do with a hole in uh, as best we could tell i think it's even a little bit unclear uh with a hole in uh a chimney uh into which some bast or some straw had been had been put and basically burned out and some sparks got out into uh, an area between the walls on the third floor um uh, or it was the second floor of the of the winter palace uh, the fire began inside there there had been evidence of smoke and then all of a sudden they figured out where it was coming from opened the wall uh, and then all the oxygen came in and that just basically set the fire uh, uh, in, in full gear. Uh, there were ac- there were firewalls I think in the theater in the, uh, uh, in the um, palace as a whole but not in the attic and the attic was made almost entirely of wood. it was just a series of wooden beams. It was described as almost like a massive navy at harbor. Um, That's how many masts there were up there. Once it got up to the attic, then it could spread laterally. There were no impediments. And so it spread very, very quickly. And over the course of the 17th, 18th, and into the 19th of December, 1837, uh, the fire burned and what was left afterwards, the walls were still standing, but otherwise it was just basically a, a smoking hulk. And what's striking here, I guess, to try to make not make this too long, is that Nicholas II, I think, was actually very worried about the implications of this fire. Uh, we have to remember that there, of course, had been the Great French Revolution in 1789. There had been the Polish insurrection against Russian rule in 1830 to 31. There had been revolutions in Belgium and France in 1830. These were events that had happened just a few years prior. And anybody who studies revolution, I think, knows that it's never clear exactly what can or does set off, uh, well, except in some cases we know what does, but ahead of time, um, they sometimes seem to appear out of nowhere. And I think Nicholas I was very worried about this, so he was deeply concerned ideologically about what this meant. And so what this uh, what this meant is that his regime had to embark on an ideological, uh, ideological campaign uh, to try to offset the more negative readings of what this could mean. And it also meant that the emperor set as really a quite astonishing goal to rebuild the entire palace outwardly as it has as it had been before over the course of 15 months, that's one five, 15 months, so that he could open, uh, dedicate, consecrate the new palace on Easter night in 1839. And amazingly, uh, they actually were able to do this. There was some marble they were still waiting for from Italy uh, when the palace reopened, uh, so it wasn't absolutely complete. But actually, within a year, outwardly it was virtually complete. There was a huge uh, number of workers on the project, perhaps 10,000 at a time. There are indications—I've never come across clear statistics—that many people perished in the reconstruction. There were some. We still don't—we don't know exactly how many as Few as 30, but perhaps many more who died in the original fire. But there was a great deal of investment made for the purposes of mm, reconstructing the palace, which I think had emerged at that by that time, by the time of the fire, as, first of all, of course, uh, a residence of the Tsarist imperial family, but also as a kind of national symbol. I think Nicholas II tried to present it as, in some ways, almost a kind of people's house, as a house that belonged to the people, as well as the emperor, in the sense of a kind of more popular uh, monarchy at the time. Again, trying to invest the monarchy with a kind of sense of narodnost or national or popular character. Uh, and so, actually, when the uh, palace reopened, there was uh, uh, the general public was actually invited to enter, to visit, uh, to see uh, at least part of the new. Mm, uh, 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 palace. And so what I think is striking is that it was really a tremendous opportunity for the regime to demonstrate its resilience and for its capacity to mobilize people for the purposes of realizing this huge construction project. But there was also lurking there was also a really strong sense uh, of danger. Uh, There was even supposedly there are rumors that Nicholas II even contemplated possibly even moving the capital back to Moscow from St. Petersburg as a result of the event. Uh, I think those are just rumors. I don't know how much truth they hold, but it's an interesting aspect of, uh, the process.
0: Hmm. Well, I think that we are just about out of time. Um, so I guess I have one final question for you. And that is, um, I don't know how, how you do it when you teach Russian history, I've got my two Russian history classes divided in 1881. And, uh, I'm just wondering now if there's an argument for dividing the standard undergraduate Russian history surveys at 1837 instead.
1: Yeah, you could. Actually, when I arrived here at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, uh, the break was 1801. And one of the first things that I did was actually to change it to 1825. Okay. There was a sort of a, my, sense, my sense is that uh, the reign of Alexander I still in some sense belongs to the 18th century. And that really Russia's 19th century begins actually somewhere in the 1830s, I would say. But if we're going to go by reigns, then we'll say 1825. That is when Nicholas I's reign uh, actually begins. So, in some sense, I've uh, already done that. And at the risk of engaging in absolutely shameless self promotion, I have thought about trying to use this book uh, <laughs> as the first book out of the gate to introduce the students to this sort of the appearance, you could say, of modern Russia. I will say, uh, regardless of my own decision on that score, it might be too much self-promotion. But I will say that the text was—it has been written. I'll use the active. I wrote the text precisely for people like a general readership or an undergraduate student, for example, who is being introduced to Russia for the first time. That is, it makes no assumptions about what people might actually know. Although my hope is that people who might know something about Russian history will still find something of value, something. Uh, entertaining something new, but I do think that it actually could work well. Or perhaps individual chapters. That was the other goal of the book: was to say, you know, if you have a student who comes in, I want to read something quick uh, and brief but accurate about, let's say, the death of Pushkin or the appearance of the first railway. You could say, oh, there's a chapter in this book uh, about 1837 uh, that will give you the basic story. You don't have to read hundreds of pages. Uh, there it is. So I was, I'm hoping that both the book as a whole and the individual chapters could actually serve um, as just entertaining reading for for anybody who finds it interesting, but also precisely in a pedagogical sense that people might actually find them useful for their teaching.
0: Well, you certainly succeeded in at least one in that supposedly I know something about the 19th century, and I learned a pile reading the book. So uh, thank you very much for uh, uh, talking to me about the book, Paul.
1: It was it was my pleasure, and it it beat many of the other things that I could have been doing could have been doing at this time,
0: like chair duties.
1: Yeah, right. Well, mercifully, I'm spared from them, and it is Friday. But uh, I commiserate with you, uh, but do your time, and you shall be liberated down the line. I'm certain.
0: I'm sure I will. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, thanks for your time. Bye bye.